Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, tech for social good, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. For more information, visit jpmorganchase.com technology. This is MIT Technology Review. The applications of artificial intelligence are so embedded in our everyday lives, it's easy to forget it's there. But these systems, like ones powering Instagram filters or the price of a car ride home, can rely on pre-existing data sets that fail to paint a complete picture of consumers. It means people become outliers in that data, often the same people who've historically been marginalized. It's why face recognition technologies are least accurate on women of color and why rideshare services can actually be more expensive in low-income neighborhoods. So how do we stop this from happening? Well, would you believe a quote from Harry Potter in his Wizarding World might create a good starting point for this conversation? I'm Jennifer Strong. In this episode, our producer Anthony Green brings you a conversation about equity from MIT Technology Review's AI conference, Mtech Digital. We'll hear from Nicole Turner-Lee, the director of the Center for Technology at the Brookings Institution, about what it takes to make effective AI policy. There's a quote from Harry Potter. Oh, of Lord, all I, I haven't seen a Harry Potter episode since my kids were little, so I'll try. Oh, man. Uh, it's a pretty good one. No, it's, it's just kind of stuck with me over the years. I'm honestly not even otherwise a big fan. But um, the quote goes, there will be a time where we must choose between what is right and what is easy. And it feels like that applies pretty squarely to how companies design these systems, right? So I guess my question is, how can policymakers, right, start to push the needle in the right direction when it comes to favorable outcomes for AI in decision making? Well, that's a great question. And again, thank you for having me. You may be wondering why I'm sitting here. I'm a sociologist. I've had the privilege of being on this stage for a couple of conferences here at MIT. But I got into this before I answer your question, because I think the quote that you're referencing points to much of what my colleagues have talked about, which are the socio-technical implications of these systems. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing this for about 30 years, and part of the challenge that we've had is that we've not seen equitable access to technology. And as we think about these emerging sophisticated systems, to your point, we have to think about the extent to which they have effects on regular, everyday people, particularly people who are already marginalized, already vulnerable in our society. Mm -hmm. So that quote has a lot of meaning, because if we're not careful, the technology in and of itself will sort of accelerate, I think, some of the progress that we've made when it comes to equity and civil rights. Yeah. Um, I'm going to date myself for just a moment. <laughs> I know I look a lot younger. When I was growing up, I used to run home and watch the Jetsons, right? There were two cartoons. I watched Fred Flintstone, which if you all remember, he rode around on a car with rocks, and I watched the Jetsons. All right, with his feet. I know, right? <laughs> I'm too young to know about Fred Flintstone. Oh, boomerang. <laughs> But but if you notice, you know, Fred Flintstone is archaic. Right. Right. The the rocks as wheels doesn't work. Yeah. The Jetsons is actually realized. And part of the challenge and the reason that I have interest in this work outside of my, you know, PhD in sociology, my interest in technology, is that these systems now are so much more generally purposed mm. that they impact people when they are contextualized in environments. And that's where I think we have to have more conversations that point to your question. So roundabout way, but I think it's really important that we have these 
these conversations now before the technology accelerates itself. 100%. And I mean, you know, all of that said, right, policymaking alone isn't going to be the only solution needed to resolve these issues. So I would love if you can speak to how accountability, specifically on the part of industry, comes into play as well. Well, the problem with policymakers is that we're not necessarily technologists. And so we can see a problem and we actually sort of see that problem in its outcomes. Yeah. So I don't think there's any policymaker or very few outside of people like Ro Khanna and others, right, <laughs> who actually know what it's like to be in, in the tech space sure. that understand how these outcomes occur. They don't understand what's underneath the hood. Or as people say, I'm trying to move away from this language. It's not really a black box, right? It's just right. a box right. <laughs> because there are some <laughs> uh, judgments that come with calling it a black box. But when you think Think about policy and those outcomes. You have to say to yourself, how do policymakers sort of take an organic iterative model and then legislate or regulate it? Mm. And that's where people like me who are in the social sciences, I think, come in and have much more conversation on what they should be looking for. Mm. Um, so the accountability there is hard yeah. <laughs> because no one is talking yeah. the same language as many of you in this room, right? The technologists are sort of rushing to market. I call it permissionless forgiveness. Uh, as my colleagues at the Center for Technology Innovation, Tom Wheeler has that great phrase, build it and then break it and then come back and fix it. Well, guess what happens? That's permissionless forgiveness because what happens? We say we're sorry when people have foreclosed uh, mortgage rates or in criminal justice systems where they're detained longer because these yeah. models dictate those predictions. Right. So policymakers have not quite, Anthony, caught up to the speed of innovation. And sure. we've said that for decades, but yeah. it's actually true. Yeah. No, <laughs> right? yeah. It's actually true. Absolutely. I mean, you've referred to this issue in the past as a civil and human rights <laughs> issue, right? So, I mean, can you kind of like expand on that and how that's kind of a shaped your conversations about policy? You know, it's shaped my conversations from the standpoint of this. I, I, you know, shameless plug, I have a book coming out on the U.S. digital divide. <laughs> so I've been very interested. I call it uh, Digitally Invisible, how the internet is creating the new underclass. Mm. And it's really about the digital divide going past the binary construction of who's online, who's not, to really thinking about what are the impacts when you are not connected? Right. And how do these emerging technologies impact you? Mm. So to your point, I call it a civil rights issue because what the pandemic demonstrated is that without internet access, you were actually not able to get the same opportunities as everybody else. You could not register for your vaccine. You could not communicate with your friends and family. 50 million school-age kids sent home, 15 to 16 million of them could not learn. And now we're seeing the effects of that. Yeah. And so when we think about artificial intelligence systems that now has replaced what I call the death of analog, mm. replaced uh, you know, how we used to do things in person, yeah. we're now seeing in a civil rights age, laws that are being violated and that in ways that I, I don't necessarily attribute to the malfeasance of technologists, mm. but what they're doing is they're foreclosing on opportunities that people have fought hard for. Sure. 2016 election, when we had foreign operatives come in and manipulate the content that was available to voters, that was a form of voter suppression. Right. And there was no place that those folks could go to, like the Supreme Court or Congress, to say, my vote was just taken away, based on the deep neural networks that were associated with what they were seeing, yeah. or the misinformation around polling. Mm -hmm. We're now at a state, when you are in a city like Boston and an Uber driver doesn't pick you up because he sees your face 
in the profile? Where do you go for the type of, um, you know, the benefits of, of the civil rights regime that we have that was not based on a digital atmosphere? Mm. So part of my work at Brookings has been, how do we look at the flexibility and agility of these systems to apply to emerging technologies? And we have no simple answer because these rules were not necessarily developed, you know, in the 21st century. They were right. developed when my grandfather told me how he walked to school with the same pair of shoes, right? Where yeah. the bottom was out because he wanted an education. We don't have that today. And I think it's worth a conversation as these technologies become more ubiquitous. How are we developing not just inclusive and equitable AI, but legally compliant AI? Mm. AI that makes sense that people feel that they have some retribution for that malfeasance. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the work we're doing on there. But I think, you know, there's a cadre of individuals like myself, <laughs> some of them here at MIT, that are really trying to figure out how do we go back and make people accountable to the civil and human liberties of folks and not allow the technology to be the fall person when it comes to, you know, why things wreck havoc or go wrong. Don't blame the robots. You know, I tell people, robots do not discriminate. I'm sorry. You know, we do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's right. something to be said about that. Right. We start looking at civil rights. I'm going to go to the audience. Anyone got a question? Thank you so much, Rene from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Hey. There is a common theme uh, on these last presentations. It's about invisibility. Yes. It's, there are so many ways to be invisible. If you have the wrong badge, you are invisible like Harry Potter. <laughs> if you are too old, if you have the wrong kind of skin. And there's one very interesting thing. When we talk, talk about data and AI, AI is proposing things ab about data that are available, yes. but there are data that are completely invisible about people who are invisible. So what kind of solutions are we building if you are basing on data, based on data, about all, always the same people. How do we bring visibility yes. to, uh, to everybody? So thank you so much. No, I love that question. Can I jump right in on this one? Go for it. You know, uh, my colleague and friend, Renee Cummings, who is the AI uh, scientist in residence at University of Virginia, she introduced me to a few months ago, and we did a podcast where she was featured, this concept of what's called data trauma. Mm. And I want to sort of walk you through this because it blew me away when I began to think about the implications and it goes to Renee's question. What does it mean? You know, when we talk about AI, we often talk about the problem development, the data that we're training it on, the way that we're interpreting the outcomes or explaining them. But we never talk about the quality of the data and the fact that the data in and of itself holds within it the, the wounds yeah. of our society. I don't care what people say. If you are training AI on criminal justice um, issues, and you're trying to make fair and equitable AI that recognizes who should be detained or who should be released, and we all know that, that particular algorithm I'm talking about, if it is trained on US data, it is disproportionately going to overrepresent people of color. Right. So even though my friends, and I tell everybody this, just so you know, like she's not coming in here, you know, being angry. I tell everybody, you need a social scientist as a friend. I don't care who you are. If you are a scientist, an engineer, a data scientist, yeah. and you don't have one social scientist as your friend, you're not being honest to this 
problem, right? Because what happens with that data, it comes with all of that noise. Mm -hmm. And despite our ability as scientists to sort of tease out that noise or diffuse other noise, you still have the basis and the foundation for the inequality. And so one of the things I've tried to tell people, it's probably okay for us to recognize the trauma of the data that we're using. It's okay for us to realize that our models will be normative in the extent to which there will be bias, technical bias, societal bias, outcome bias, <laughs> and prediction bias. But we should disclose what those things are. Yeah. And that's where my work in particular has become really interesting to me as a person who is looking at this as, you know, the use of proxies and the use of data. For me, it becomes what part of the model is much more injurious mm. to respondents and to outcomes? And what part should we disclose that we just don't have the right data to predict accurately without some type of, you know, risk sure. to that population? Yeah. So to your question, I think if we acknowledge that, you know, I think then we can get to a point where we can have these honest conversations on how we bring interdisciplinary context to certain situations. We've got another question. Hey, Nicole. Congratulations hey. for your perspective. Um, my name is Cal. I run, I'm a data scientist by training, and I run a team of AI and ML designers and developers. And so, you know, it scares me how fast the industry is evolving. You mentioned GPT-3. We're already talking about GPT-4 is in the works and the exponential leap in capabilities that's going to present. Something that you mentioned that really struck me is that legislators don't understand what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that us as data scientists should be the ones making decisions about how to tie our hands behind our backs yes. and how to protect our work from having unintended consequences. Yes. So how do we engage and how do we help legislators understand the real risks and not the hype that is sometimes heard or perceived in the media? Yeah, no, I love that question. I'm actually going to flip it. And I'm going to talk about it in two ways in which I actually talk about it. So I do think that legislators who work in this space, particularly in those sensitive use cases. So I tell people, I give this example all the time. I love shopping for boots. And I'm okay with the algorithm that tells me as a consumer that I love boots. But as Latanya Sweeney's work has indicated, if you associate other things with me, uh, what other uh, attributes does this particular person have? When does she buy, buy boots? How many many boots does she have? Does she check her credit when she's buying boots? What kind of computer is she using when she's buying her boots? If you become to make that accumulative picture around me, then we run into what Dr. Sweeney has talked about, these associations that create that type of risk. So to your first question, I think you're right that policymakers should actually define the guardrails, but I don't think they need to do it for everything. I think we need to pick those areas that are most sensitive. The EU has called them high risk. And maybe we might take from that some models that help us think about what's high risk and where should we spend more time. And potentially policymakers, where should we spend time together? I'm a huge fan of regulatory sandboxes when it comes to co-design and co-evolution of feedback. Uh, I have an article coming out in an Oxford University Press book on an incentive-based rating system that I could talk about in just a moment. But I also I also think on the flip side that all of you have to take account for your reputational risk. As we move into a much more digitally advanced society, it is incumbent upon developers to do their due diligence too. You can't afford as a company to go out and put an algorithm that you think or an autonomous system that you think is the best idea <laughs> and then land up on the first page of the newspaper. Mm. Because what that does, it degrades the trustworthiness by your consumers of your product. Mm. 
And so what I tell you know both sides is that I think it's worth a conversation. We have certain guardrails when it comes to facial recognition technology because we don't have the technical accuracy when it applies to all populations. When it comes to disparate impact on financial products and services, there are great models that I've found in my work in the banking industry where they actually have triggers because they have regulatory bodies that help them understand what proxies actually deliver disparate impact. There are areas that we just saw this, right, in the housing and appraisal market, where AI is being used to sort of um, replace the subjective decision-making, but contributing more to the type of discrimination and predatory appraisals that we see. There are certain cases that we actually need policymakers to impose guardrails, but more so, be proactive. I tell policymakers all the time, you can't blame data scientists if the data is horrible. Right. Put more money in R&D. <laughs> Help us create better data sets that are overrepresented in certain areas or underrepresented in terms of minority populations. The key thing is it has to work together. I don't think that we'll have a good winning solution mm. if policymakers actually, you know, lead this or data scientists lead it by itself in certain areas. I think you really need people working together and collaborating on what those principles are. We create these models. Computers don't. We know what we're doing with these models when we're creating algorithms or autonomous systems or ad targeting. We know. We, in this room, we cannot sit back and say we don't understand why we use these technologies. We know because they actually have a precedent for how they've been expanded in our society. But we need some accountability. Mm. And that's really what I'm trying to get at. Who's making us accountable for these systems that we're creating? It's so interesting, Anthony, these last few uh, weeks, as many of us have watched the uh, conflict in Ukraine, my daughter, because I have a 15-year-old, has come to me with a variety of TikToks and other things that she's seen to sort of say, hey, mom, did you know that this is happening? And I've had to sort of pull myself back because I've gotten really involved in the conversation, not knowing that in some ways, once I go down that path with her, I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper into that well. Yeah. And I think for us as scientists, it kind of goes back to this I have a dream speech. We have to determine which side of history we want to be on with this technology, folks, and how far down the rabbit hole do we want to go to contribute, I think, what the greatness of AI is, our ability to have human cognition wrapped up mm. in these repetitive processes that go way beyond our wildest imagination of the Jetsons and that allow us to do things that none of us have been able to do in our lifetime. Where do we want to sit mm. on the right side of history? And how do we want to handle these technologies so that we create better scientists, sure. not ones that are worse? And I think that's a valid question to ask of this group, and it's a valid question to ask of yourself. I don't know if we can end on <laughs> anything better, and we're out of time. Nicole, we can go all day. I know. But... I, feel, I always feel like a, a Baptist preacher, you know? Like, <laughs> so if I have energy about it, it's Choir, can you sing it? I know, right? I can't <laughs> sing it, but you can do that. I have a dream speech, Anthony. Oh, man. <laughs> You're putting me on the stand, and I'm already on stage. Yeah, right. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you so much as well. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, tech for social good, and design thinking. 
Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. For more information, visit jpmorganchase.com technology. This episode was produced by Anthony Green, Aaron Underwood, and Emma Silicons. It's edited by Michael Riley, directed by Laird Nolan, and mixed by Garrett Lang. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with special thanks to Amy Lammers and Brian Bryson. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.